Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. My wife has the spiritual gift of mothering. Uh, She takes broken kids under her wing like a mother hen until they get healed and then they can fly again. So that's how, you can show my, our picture, my family. New family photo. There it is. That's some of the kids that live with us. I'll talk about them today. But before I introduce, I'm going to introduce a little video clip. Also, there's going to be a sign-up sheet if you want to keep in contact with me. I don't have a website because of security, but I have an email I send out updating people every month what's happening with photos, with prayer requests. You can sign up for that when you go out. I'm somebody that talks about movement, and I don't use that word lightly. Uh, I've experienced uh, three times movement in my life. I came to Christ in a movement, the last movement in North America, when I was 18 years old and got kicked out of high school for dealing drugs and got locked up in jail for a while. And then I got out, and some kids asked me to go to a camp. I'd never been to a camp. Uh, But I figured that's a good place to go meet girls. Okay, I'll go. (laughs) I'm sure the guys here don't think that. (laughs) And I saw these kids on fire for Jesus, and I said, that's good for you, but not for me. Hardened my heart for one day, two days, three days, four days, the last day of the camp. God's spirit broke through. I got on my knees, cried my eyes out, turned my life over to Jesus. I didn't know where that would take me. I didn't know there was something deposited in my life that had to come out in Indonesia later on. I was just glad I was given a second chance at life. Then I uh, went down to University of Southern California, and I was engineering major for one week. Uh, I was a journalism major for the next week. And the third week, I was a dropout. Because I need, need to be discipled. And I, where do you go to get discipled? And people say, Jim, there's these places called Bible colleges. I, 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 I tried to get in. I applied to two and got rejected. Because even though my heart had changed, my outside appearance was still kind of rough looking. My hair was this long. And this is what was in America at that time called the hippie, movement, hippie generation. But amongst all of us long-haired hippies in California, there was a movement called the Jesus People Movement. And it was very real. Kids coming off the streets, off the beaches, just as they are, uh, flooding in every, every Friday night in the circus tent, a couple, 3,000 kids coming together, all brand new, come to Jesus. And it was an out-of-control movement. You see, mo- no man can make a movement. Only God can do it. And he's doing it more today than we've ever th- seen before. So I came to faith in a movement. I came to Papua, when they went to the jungle, Saw a movement amongst a tribal group of people where 80% of this tribe came to faith, a movement. Then came to the city where we started working with problem young people. I'm going to talk a lot about that, about young people. And we've seen a movement in the last few years uh, across the country. And I want to show you this clip. Who leads a movement? No name, no fame people lead movements. Everyday common people like you and me are the ones leading movements. And these are my leaders. These are our movement leaders in Indonesia.
after being in the jungle for 20 years, seeing a movement happen amongst a tribal group, uh, we said, we're done, God. Where do we go? Where's the next tribe? And there's 250 tribes, 250 languages in the island of Papua, western half, Idian Jaya, part of Indonesia. I figured we'd go down the river to another tribe over a range of mountains, but God surprised me. He said, the biggest tribe that's unreached now is the younger generation. And we're losing a whole generation. All the young people are flooding to the, the coastline where cities are emerging, trying to find jobs, trying to find school. They end up dropping out of school, don't find jobs, getting drunk on the side of the road. And all the modern drugs of the world are in our island now. And HIV AIDS is the highest in all of Indonesia. 44% of all AIDS cases in Indonesia are on our island. I bury one young person a month, a uh, victim of AIDS. Every month I bury somebody. It's epidemic levels. Uh, so we moved to the city to do church for problem young people. You see, my wife and I have a motto in our life. When we got married, we said, we, the rest of our life together, we only want to do things that nobody else wants to do or can do. If somebody else can do it, let them do it. I want to do that stuff that nobody else can do or wants to do. Lots of churches know what to do with clean-cut, nice young people. They don't know what to do with problem young people, broken young people. And the majority of your generation today is broken because the whole idea of broken home is now an, a natural thing. You know, in Hong Kong, Hong Kong now is 50% divorce rate. One out of every two marriages in Hong Kong fail, and that, they, don't, they don't all register their marriages. <laughs> they know uh, I'm going to change my mo get a new model in a few years, so I won't register the marriage. Uh, Korea, the l biggest church in the world, approaching 50% divorce rate. You guys know last year in South Korea, of all the kids that ran away from home, 70% were girls running away from home, not boys, because home is not a safe place in Korea anymore. Indonesia, same phenomena. We have 35% divorce rate in Jabotabek or the Jakarta greater region this last year. And who's the victim? Young people. So we went to the city to do church for Palban young people. I started with 12 drunks on the street, a gang of boys, brought them into our home. It's our first church. I figured if Jesus can begin with 12 delinquents, I can begin with 12 delinquents. <laughs> they fell in love with Jesus, stopped drinking, got their life together. I tried to put them in local churches for ongoing discipleship. It didn't work because even though they changed inside, their outside appearance is still rough looking and they don't know the language of the church. You know, we have two languages, outside language and inside language. They don't know the inside language. And they were restored in community life with us, where 24-7 they have to be responsible for their heart and for their mind. If I put them in a place that just has a service on Sunday, they can't make it. So we had to start a new church, a new denomination. We call it the Problem People Christian Church. <laughs> and it started out with, with uh, drunks off the street, extrapolated to drug addicts, then the drug dealers, then the prostitutes then the HIV-AIDS patients, and then the gangs, gangs on the street, then the prison inmates. Uh, those are all of our church members. And it grew until people said, Jim, you got the biggest church in all of Papua. Yeah, maybe. But then something happened 14 years ago that changed my life forever. On the 26th of December, when off the west coast of Sumatra, under the water, plates opened up and sucked all the water off the shoreline at 8 in the morning. 
There's free fish all along the shore because it's all dry. Kids coming out of the villages collecting this free fish, but then the plates closed back down, and the first wave of the tsunami came on land. There were three waves of the tsunami. The first one was dark, hot, like a volcanic eruption under the water and took out all those villages. Nobody could run. No kid could survive. Then there was a second wave, the third wave. The third wave was 30 meters high. And at the end, total devastation. When the tsunami happened, I was in Papua, 3,000 kilometers away. Couldn't get much further Papua from Aceh. But we're watching on TV like everybody. 24-7, there's coverage being happening. All the roads have been severed. No aid is getting into these poor people for one, two, three days. On the third day after the tsunami, I'm out running. Every morning I run 10 kilometers. My wife and I run 10 kilometers every morning to keep our health up so we don't get malaria all the time. And it's our time to pray. We run for an hour and pray. And so I'm out running and praying, and God says, Jim, go to Aceh. Okay, I go home, gather my family. I said, God wants us to go to Aceh. Okay, let's go. So we loaded up. My daughter brought her medical team from the, her clinic uh, in Papua, and we got on a plane. We landed the night of the third day after the tsunami, and the first commercial aircraft allowed to, allowed to land. Miracle. Came down from the through the tarmac, smelled the stench of rotting bodies everywhere because no cleanup has gone on. Walking through Banda Aceh, this modern city that half of it has been swept off to the ocean like with a broom gone and realizing 250,000 people have just gone to a Christless eternity. And all of a sudden, this Papuan ministry that people say is successful doesn't look very successful compared to the vast need in Western Indonesia. I was really bothered by this. Went back to Papua. A few weeks later, I'm on my motorcycle. I just drive a motorcycle till today. I don't drive a car, just a motorcycle. And I'm on my bike, and somebody coming down from the other street, not seeing me, coming very fast, hits me, takes my bike many meters down the road, and I go flying through the air with the Lord. And when I come down and kiss the asphalt, my shoulder cracks in two places. This side's a different shape than this side now, but I survived. But I asked God, how much more time do I have? How many more accidents can I survive? And I promised God that day, with the remaining time I have on earth, I will not be satisfied with a few growing churches in Papua. Could I see a movement happen from one end of Indonesia to the other before I leave this earth? So I gathered 12 young leaders from around the country that I had relationship with in a youth ministry network. They're, they're considered successful. They can gather thousands of young people in church services. But they're frustrated. Is that all there is? Just rah-rah in church services? There's got to be more than that. We went off to the forest for three days to pray, dream, no other agenda. At the end of three days, we agreed to erase the blackboard. Everything we know about how to do church, forget it. Everything we know about how to evangelize, forget it. Go back to the drawing board, the, book, the guidebook. How did Jesus plant the first church? Because I had a sneaking suspicion if I did it Jesus' way, I might get Jesus' results. <laughs> I can do it my way and get results, but maybe there's more. So we went back to see how did Jesus do it. And it's not the book of Acts. That's too late. The first church is the 12 disciples with Jesus. What's the DNA, the, the values that he put into their life that erupted on the day of Pentecost? We wanted to get that DNA. We got one value, went out and practiced for three months. These 12 guys all, and myself all across the country came back, held each other accountable. Got another value, went out and practiced for three months, came back, held each other accountable. After a year, these guys are seeing stuff they never thought could happen. 
After two years, they're training other people in their regions what they're learning. And now after uh, 14 years, we've seen about 1,900 churches planted across the country, about 60,000 people baptized. And it's the best time of my life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Movement. Matthew, I'm not going to make a story tell you. You don't have to open it. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. Jesus is going down the road, and here's Matthew with his tax collecting booth. And because uh, he's part of the tax mafia. And Jesus says, Jesus says two words, follow me. Matthew drops everything, follows Jesus. And the next moment, where does he go? He goes to Matthew's house to have a party. Jesus likes to party. It's too many Jesus films. Jesus is too, ser- too serious. I think Jesus partied a lot. And he went to Matthew's house to plant a church. Matthew was the door into his gang, the tax mafia gang. Jesus wanted to plant a church in the tax mafia gang. But some nice church people came along and criticized they said, Jesus, they're Pharisees. Why are you hanging out with the wrong crowd? Jesus says, this is my kind of people. I've come to seek and to save the lost. It's hurting people that need a doctor, not well people. But then the next day, another group come. They're better than the first group. These are John the Baptist disciples. And they say, Jesus, how come you and your disciples don't fast? This is the first time in Scripture we realize Jesus forbid his disciples to fast. Wow, Jim. Here at the city, we're good at fasting. We just heard Andre's been fasting about this. uh, uh, Yes, vision statement. Jesus says, don't fast. Because as long as the bridegroom is with you, it's not a time to mourn. You can do that later. Because fasting in Jewish culture at this time was only for one purpose, mourning. Someone would die, they'd mourn the death of someone by fasting, or they'd mourn sin by fasting. Jesus says, stop it. Stop the old to get the new. It's not a transition. It's not tweaking things. It's something brand new. And he ends with the illustration, if you have new wine, you don't put an old wineskin. It bursts. You need new wineskin. And there, new wine there, guys, is not the Holy Spirit. It's end times harvest. Because the whole context is Matthew coming to faith. God is giving us new wineskins. We see a few of them. A lot of them pass us by. But there's a whole bunch of brand new wineskins that he's giving for end times harvest. I'm going to talk about one today. And I'll illustrate it. We just had the Asian Games in Jakarta. And there's one thing I really like about the Olympics or the Asian Games. It's the high jump where people run really fast and jump over a bar. And then it gets raised. They jump again. It gets raised, raised until only one person gets over the top. That's an illustration of what we've done in the church worldwide. We've raised the bar, more professional, more good-looking, more qualified to where only a few people can serve God. It's time to lower the bar. Everybody can get into end times harvest. Everybody. There are 640 movements registered in the world today. I know because I get together with the guys that monitor these, that are in these every year. We, we verify these. What's a movement? A movement is not gathering a bunch of people in a stadium. That's an event. Events are easy. Movements are hard. Movement is 222. Say it. 222. Matthew, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 222. Where Paul says, hey, Timo, what I give to you, you give it to somebody else who gives it to somebody else who gives it to somebody else. 
from Matthew to Timothy to another one to another one, four generations. Meaning I go over here, bring some people to faith, they form a fellowship. They go over there, win some people to faith, form a fellowship. They go over there, win some people to faith, form a fellowship. They come up here, win some people to faith, form a fellowship. The fourth generation doesn't even know the first generation. There's no contact. So it's not dependent on a charismatic leader with good speaking ability. No. It's not dependent on a good management structure that keeps things going. No. It's not dependent on a big budget with a lot of money. No. It's dependent on the values. The DNA that's transferred into every generation, and after four generations, it cannot be stopped. Even persecution cannot stop it. In Indonesia, we're up to 17 generations now. And it's, I, maybe it comes back down to Matthew 25. I'm going to storytell it again. Jesus has asked, hey, who's going to get into the kingdom? The king's going to accept who, who? And Jesus says, oh, that's easy. When you saw me hungry, you gave me food. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. When I was in jail, you came and visited me. When I was sick, you came and saw me. They say, Jesus, when do we ever see you hungry or naked or in jail or sick? And in verse 40, he says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Sometimes we read that verse, we think it means we need to have sympathy for poor people. That's part, part of it, but the meaning is a whole lot deeper. Because Jesus is putting himself on the same level with the least of these. Common, everyday people. He says, you see them, you see me. You see me, you see them. We're one level. And remember Jesus' words, I'm going to be with the Father, and this Holy Spirit's going to come, and whoever believes is going to do my works and going to do more than those works. Who's going to keep doing Jesus' works on earth? Common, everyday people. No name, no fame people. Those are the people leading movements today. I'm getting some illustrations. I can't talk about anybody else. I'll tell you some stories now, what we're doing, and how God is raising up people that the world would never see qualified for serving God. Okay, one day, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's walking down the road, and some kids come. And the bodyguards of Jesus, the disciples, <laughs> say, don't bother the guru. <laughs> don't bother the teacher. And Jesus says, don't. Let them come, because the kingdom of God is for them, too. Sometimes they think, oh, these are nice little Jewish kids with white robes. No, they're street kids. They haven't bathed for a week. Their robes are tattered and torn and dirty. And maybe they're pulling on Jesus' robe asking for money. If they're in Indonesia, they have a little guitar in their hand on the side of the street playing it too. And Jesus says, let them come. They got a place in the kingdom. Street kids being used of God. When we moved to the city, we took 12 boys off the street into our home. And from then on till today, last 20 years, we have 20 to 30 kids live in our home. Ages 8 to 18. Uh, runaways, kids abused, kids whose home is not safe. In Papua, 70% of all girls are sexually molested before the age of 17 in the home. By an uncle and sometimes by their biological father. Home is not a safe place. Anybody that needs shelter, guys out of gangs, you need shelter. Anybody that needs help, shelter, they can come live with us. They're not believers, but pretty quickly they start following Jesus. We practice Matthew 10, 8 very clearly. Freely you've been given, freely give it away. The little bit of progress you make with Jesus, you grab somebody else's hand and you bring them with you. That's a movement principle. And so who gets to live with us? Well, the kids decide. 
If they have a friend, they'll say, my friend just reached rock bottom. He just fell. Let's bring him in to live. They have a house meeting. My wife and I do not attend. They have a house meeting and it has to be unanimous because they're going to disciple the new kid coming in. And they all say, yes, let's do it. And the new kid comes through the door and another kid who's been with us for one month says, hey, as I'm trying to follow Jesus, you follow me. That's discipleship. It has nothing to do with head knowledge. It's about emulating the life of somebody who's trying to follow Jesus too. And some people ask me, Jim, uh, do you have a book, a discipleship book? Singapore has lots of good discipleship books. <laughs> I used to have one, a big, a big thick one. It got thinner and got thinner, and then I tossed it. Now I disciple with chickens. Do you have chickens in Singapore? You can't disciple them. We have a chicken farm. We have a 1,000 chickens. Uh, and we feed chickens every morning and every afternoon. If you want to be a leader in our ministry, you have to feed chickens for six months. Then you can be a leader because it's character development. And these chickens are holy chickens. We don't use any hormones, no medicine. We pray over every cage every morning. So when we cut chickens, like Fridays, we cut chickens, and the kids will take them out and sell them in the restaurants and the satay places, and they'll bring a chicken and say, Ma'am, Mr., this chicken meat tastes different than any chicken meat you've ever had. It doesn't have medicine in it. It has prayer, doa, in it, and it will bring a blessing to your family. People buy these golden chickens from our kids, and they hear their testimony how their life has been changed in Jesus. Street kids being used by God in end times harvest. It's happening everywhere. Okay, there's another one. Jesus is going through Sychar and Samaria, John 4. And there's a lady getting water at noon because she can't be with the other ladies because she's a prostitute. Jesus opens up her whole life and she runs back to her village and brings the whole village of Sychar to meet Jesus. And Jesus stays two more days. A whole village comes to Jesus because of a prostitute. I kind of think if it happened 2,000 years ago, it can still happen today. You may not be aware of this uh, unless you go to Galen, Galen Street here, and you'll see all the Indonesians serving customers there. But inside the country of Indonesia, uh, sex trafficking makes 3.3 billion U.S. dollars every year. We are now competing with Thailand for the market. And... There are several hubs, and one of them is in Papua, 15 minutes from our house, the city of prostitutes. Uh, 400 that have been brought over from Surabaya, from Jalandoli, where they have the biggest place, and they were, they were exported to Papua. And there's 400, and all the, the bars and discos in this city, Hanya, only for the purpose of helping this, these customers. So it's a city for prostitution. A few years ago, churches came, and they barricaded the road going in. I went by that day and I cried because I know if this is closed down, these girls would just go someplace else and keep doing the only thing they know how to do. Where are there people that want to take these girls into their churches? So we started going in. My wife going with, with girls, gals from her cell group. They go door to door, room to room, take a little medicine, little food. But what's the biggest felt need of a prostitute? Her whole self-image has been robbed from her because she's just a piece of merchandise for the enjoyment of other people. So my wife does the ministry of listening. You don't have to talk a lot. You just have to listen because nobody listens to them and give them self-worth back. And one by one, they give their life to Jesus. But they can't run. 
People say, Jim, if they come to faith, they got to get out of there. I wish it was that easy. If they run, they'll be hunted down and killed. They have debts that are so big they could never pay off. And they've been in there so long, their whole social network of support is inside. They can't imagine living on the outside. So you have to make a new system of support inside where the girls get together, pray with each other, do discovery Bible study, church in the brothel. That's what we do. And they save up their money. And when they get half of their contract, we'll matching funds and buy out their contract. They come out legal, can't be chased. They come live with us, learn a new lifestyle. But it takes time. After they come to faith, it may be weeks, maybe months before they get out. Their hearts have changed, but they still have to serve their customers. But now they practice redeemed prostitution. Do you have that at Gidlin? <laughs> this is what it looks like. One night, there's a men's group I'm leading. These are not good men. These guys still beat their wives and get drunk, but they're trying to get better through the word with me. And there was a new man that came. I said, how did you hear about our group? He's a little embarrassed. Yeah, I heard from a prostitute. Tell me more. Yeah, I went into the prostitution camp. I went into the room with this girl, and she started talking to me. And she asked me, don't you have a wife? I said, yeah, I have a wife. <laughs> she asked, don't you have children? I said, yeah, I have children. Then she said, why would you come here to me? Why don't you go home to your wife and children? I never heard a prostitute talk like this. I asked her, why are you talking like this? Oh, Jim Yost's wife. She teaches us, trains us to fill a whole half hour with talking. <laughs> we don't have to have sex, but you still have to pay us. <laughs> That's redeemed prostitution. And that night, that man gave his life to Jesus. A prostitute brought him. Why not? See, in times harvest, there's new, new wineskins, out-of-the-box stuff. We never dreamed possible. Okay, there's another one, um, John, uh, Mark chapter 5, the gathering demoniac. Here's this crazy guy with all these demons. His whole life, he's naked, running around the cemetery, cutting himself. And Jesus comes to the shore, and he goes and meets Jesus. Why would a demonized man want to meet Jesus? Demons don't want to be close to Jesus. There's still something inside, a little bit, that wants help. And Jesus casts all the demons into a herd of swine that jump in the water and die. And the guy's free. And immediately he says, Jesus, I want to join your church. I want to go with you and your disciples. And Jesus says, no, go home. Jesus, don't you know how to disciple? If he goes home, he's got to go by that cemetery and more demons are going to jump into him. You have to take him, Jesus. No, Jesus says, go home. And the next time we hear about this, this area, Decapolis, the Ten Cities area, it's full of churches. Who planted those churches? This crazy guy. Imagine when he went home, clothed in his right mind, and they said, what happened to you? And he said, I met Jesus, and he delivered me. The power of a changed life, the testimony of a changed life. That's an evangelist. Man, and there's lots happening. I, okay, I have one of my disciples named Demetrius. We call him Demi. Demi grew up in, near our home in the, in the edge of the city where we live now in a military compound. His dad's a soldier. His whole life, he saw his dad beat his mother every single day. She'd get broken bones, go into the hospital, get out, get beaten again, go back in the hospital. When Demi was 12 years old, one night his dad was asleep in the bedroom. He grabbed a machete, went in, and was going to slit the throat of his dad. 
At the last minute, God held his hand and he didn't do it. The next day, his father went off to the military outpost, came back in the afternoon in the front yard, fell over, died on the spot. They don't know if it was a heart attack or a stroke, but he was dead. Demi had this wounded heart from all of the atrocities he saw his dad do to his mom. He went on a path of rebellion, the town criminal, going in and out of jail, uh, always drunk, leading gangs. His siblings all came to faith through our ministry. His mom came to faith. They all witnessed to him. He wouldn't have anything to do with it. They said, Demi is too far from God's grace. He's beyond help. Well, one night he's drinking with his buddies, and he gets pressure in his chest and falls over. They run him to the hospital, to emergency room. En route, he cries out, God, save me. If I don't die, I'll turn my life over to you. And God gave Demi a second chance. And he turned around 180 degrees overnight. The next day, I gave him a Bible. I said, Demi, you don't need to go into any discipleship class any formal thing, you learn, I want to show you how to do discovery Bible study, inductive Bible study. You read it, ask questions of what God's Spirit says, you do it. Every day he'd read the Word, he'd hear God speak to him, he'd do it. He grew really fast, became one of my top leaders. One day he came to me and he said, Jim, if God speaks to us through his Word, we have to obey within 48 hours. If we don't obey within two days, that truth will leave us. I thought about it. That's true. So it became the 48-hour rule in our ministry. Everybody knows. If God speaks to you, even this morning, you have 48 hours to obey. If you don't, you'll lose it. And we text each other. We keep each other accountable. Demi will text me almost every day. Jim, what are you reading in the Word today? How are you obeying? My disciple is asking me that. I need that. In a movement, everybody is discipling everybody. Everybody's holding everybody accountable. Nobody is above accountability. Okay, there's another one, Zacchaeus in Jericho. Zacchaeus was the mafia boss of Jericho. Everybody hated him. He stole from the people. He stole from the government. Jesus comes to town, and Zacchaeus thinks maybe Jesus is the one person on earth who will accept me just the way I am. So he comes down the road, and it's so full he can't see Jesus. He climbs a tree. The mafia boss climbs a tree like a kid. Because he's got to see Jesus. And when Jesus comes by, he just sees Zacchaeus. He says, hey, Zach, I want to come to your room and your house and eat tonight. And he goes there and Zacchaeus repents, gives back all the money he's cheated people. Sometimes there's people that we think in our community are beyond help. They're too wicked. Gangs. I'm sure in, in, in Singapore, you've got gangs just like everywhere. In, in Papua, we have gangs. The number one gang is the reggae rasta gang. These are kids that don't cut their hair for seven years. They're dreadlocks, all, all of them. Uh, and they're pro, they're Bob Mar everything about Bob Marley they love. <laughs> drug, they're all the drug traffickers, traffic, all the drug trafficking in our three cities areas in the hands of these kids. And they do demonstrations, they're violent, they're, they want to re rebel against the government. And there's 600 of these card-carrying members of this gang. They will never come to church. If they came to church, came into a service, all the church people would run out scared. So how do you do church for these people? Okay, I, I know they like reggae music. Okay, I'll, do a, I'll sponsor a music festival. Three days, secular. 10,000 kids came for three days. And we had 42 bands from all over Papua that influenced young people with their music. I wanted to see, could I win a band to Jesus and their fans would become the first church? 
and it worked. Two, two bands came to faith. I met the reggae Rasta kids there, and I asked them, any of you guys want to do a Bible study with me? Ten of them said yes. Why would they want to do a Bible study? Because they're all boys off the street with no father, no father figure in their life, and they're looking for a father. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. What day do you want to study the Bible? How about Saturday at noon? Because they can't get up any earlier than noon because Friday night they're wasted. So I, I said, okay, I don't care what you do on Friday night. If Saturday you want to wake up, have a Bible study, I'll come. Every week I would come. After a few weeks, two of them gave their life to Jesus, got baptized. A few more weeks, the leader of the gang called me. He said, Jim, we're going to have a leader's meeting. Would you please join? Okay. So I went to this place. It was a hill. There were 20 leaders of this gang. And they're all smoking stuff. I don't know what was inside. And they're talking. One of them says, yeah, we're getting concerned because lots of our gang members are getting arrested and put in jail. Another one says, yeah, Munk, maybe we need a new purpose in life. And then another one said, Jim, we asked you to come today because we want to ask, would you be our spiritual advisor? <laughs> they don't know the word pastor. I said, sure. And I immediately just go in saying, hey, you're, you were created by, with, by God with a purpose. Do you, your, your good works that he's put into your life, do you know what those are? And I let them discuss and at the end, they said, hey, we're going to do a free concert because they're all musicians. Then we're going to do a free concert in the city for all the young people, and we're going to make the theme anti-drugs. I hear that, and I know they're all users, and most of them are dealers, and they want to do an anti-drug free concert. In my heart, I'm smiling, saying, thank you, Jesus. This is like little children learning to walk, taking baby steps to Jesus. And there's emerging this church for drug dealers. I don't have to understand it. I just have to know God's giving us new wineskins like never before. Open up your mind. Okay, there's another one. This one involves Singapore. <laughs> but we'll go back to Jerusalem. One day Jesus was in uh, the temple. And at the end of the temple service, everybody goes out and there's a temple offering box as they go out the door. And people put money in it. And this old widow lady goes by and puts two coins in. Jesus sees that. He gathers his disciples. Hey, guys, it's school time. I want to teach you something. See that lady? She gave more than everybody else here. But Jesus' disciples are kind of slow. They don't get it. They think there's businessmen put big checks in. <laughs> she just gave two coins. Jesus says she gave everything she has. She gave more than anybody else. Our church in Papua is not wealthy. They're all poor kids. They're getting jobs now. They're getting their life turned around. They're getting jobs. And they often give back 100% of their paycheck to the church, to Jesus. They're just so thankful they got a second chance at life. They're really giving. A few years ago, there were two pastors from Singapore that came on mission trip to Indonesia. I won't tell you what church. <laughs> They're well known. And they started from Jakarta, and they ended in Papua. And they were on a Sunday in Papua, so they came to our celebration with 700 young people, all from bad backgrounds that love Jesus with everything. Uh, you think you guys are jump up and down. These, our kids jump. They, for, we have a sand floor, so it's easy to dance to Jesus. So these pastors were in the middle of the service watching all these young people dance, praise God, be thankful they got a second chance at life. They didn't have any part in the service. They just wanted to enjoy the atmosphere. At the end of the service, 
Our top leader, Franz is his name, he's my disciple. He was, used to be a gang member, a gang leader, a drunk on the street. Now he's our pastor. And Franz sees, hey, we got two guests that came from a faraway place called Singapore. We better help them. They probably had to pay a lot of money for their tickets. We better help them. So he says, hey, kids, don't leave. We're going to take an extra offering today to help our guests that came from far away. He doesn't know they're from the biggest church in Singapore, probably the wealthiest church in Singapore. He just knows they came from far. They got to be helped. So all the kids come forward, put money in a basket, and then he calls these pastors forward, and he puts the money in their hands, and they start crying. And they say, Jim, we've been on mission trips around the world. Everywhere we go, they know we're from a large church, a wealthy church, and everybody puts their hand out asking us for money. This is the first time we've been given an offering, and they're crying. And I say, that's because our kids don't know they're poor. They don't know they're poor. Poor is not here. Poor is here. And God is using poor, common, everyday people to do incredible things for the kingdom of God, including this church. A few years ago, I was in Cuba doing a training for the underground church, communist country, so they can't meet always uh, in, the, in the eye of the public. So they go out in this very far away place in the country, and I, there was like 300 of them. I ministered, and three leaders of the movement this underground movement, at the invitation, they ran forward, got on their knees, responded to the word of God. Because they said, we leaders have to respond first before everybody else. Wow. I was really taken by these guys. So afterwards, I was sitting talking to them. And one guy, I'll never forget, his name was Roberto. He said, Jim, I'm an evangelist. I like to plant churches. But the doctors have told me I've got cancer. And they told me I have six months to live. So I promised God... With every month he gives me on earth, I'm going to plant a new church. That was several years ago. Roberto's still alive today. And he's planting a church every month. And I really believe God has elongated his life because he lined up his purposes with God's purposes. Wow. That's what I would challenge you to today. Here in Singapore, what is God doing? What are the good works that he's doing in your life? Ephesians 2.10 you know, it says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are those for this church, for you personally, for your family? I'll close with this illustration. My daughter, Amy, she, she grew up in the jungle. All my kids grew up in the Papua in the jungle. We did homeschooling, so that, that's, their first language is the tribal language. Their second language is Indonesian. Their third language is English. And Amy helped mom in the clinic, in the jungle. So at age 12, she's helping women deliver babies. She's giving injections. She's setting broken bones all at age 12. So later, she gravitated to medical training in America. And she went off, got it, came back quick, and runs our medical clinic for the poor. She has 100 patients every day. Incredible. And um, a, a pastor from outside was visiting us, and he was with Amy in the kitchen talking. And I was eavesdropping in another room. And I heard him ask, Amy, if you had a check and you could put in any amount of money, what would be your dream? What would be your dream to do? Amy was surprised at that question. Nobody had ever asked her this question. And she answered immediately, I'm doing my dream. 
I'm not waiting for a lot of people to notice me. I'm not waiting for people to give me money. Every day I hear God speak to me and I do what he tells me. I do my dream. Guys, do your dream. I'm in Baylor University Sports Arena four years ago, speaking to 6,000 students in America from all across many churches, all on fire for Jesus, all on fire for mission. After I got finished speaking and sat down, they clapped their hands, and their leader got up and said something that shocked me. She said, we in the younger generation want to change the world. Yeah, I know that. But she added this. We in the younger generation want to change the world, but we don't know how to do it. We don't have the work ethic to make it happen. And I realized that night that in the Western world, there's a younger generation that doesn't know how to sacrifice, to pay a price to change the future. And the problem isn't the younger generation. The problem is my generation that did not model sacrifice for their children. Because kids get that from their parents. We took too much good care of our kids. We, we coddled them until we, they're, they're not ready to, to go into hard settings and, and tough it out. They don't know how to sacrifice. My daughter, when she went to college, Amy went to college in Portland, Oregon. She hated America. <laughs> It's a foreign country. Every night she'd cry over the internet. You know you can cry over the internet. And I, might, I would say, oh, honey, we're on your side. We're praying for you. But I'm actually smiling. Thank you, God. My daughter's going through the valley, and she's going to come out stronger. Because I want her to learn to tough it out and see God in, intervene for her. I'm not going to go save her in every situation. So I would challenge you guys today. You know, what is it that you've been called as a church? You've come into existence for a purpose. Not just to cop, photocopy somebody else. There's a unique calling you have to change the world. And it's happening through things like we're doing in, in Indonesia, education. We're doing the best school in all of Papua because Papuans are left behind. They're left in the dust. They can't compete with anybody else because of poor education. So we have kindergarten to high school, number one education. They learn Mandarin, first grade. Black-skinned, kinky-haired kids speak in Mandarin because that's the language of the future we know China's going to take over <laughs> but creative thinking all kinds of good incredible stuff to prepare kids to change their world so what are you here for what's your purpose so we're going to pray and I want you just to ask God before we end today to start opening up to you what he's got for you Father, Father God we say please Make us usable for your kingdom. We know you have plans and you want to share it with us and we want to know one step at a time. Give us light for today, then for tomorrow, and then for next week. We want to be obedient to what you tell us. We want to have radical obedience, not always asking for confirmation, for, for explanation, but whatever you say, we're going to do it and we're going to do it quickly. I pray, God, in this 2019, you will take the city into places where they've never thought before. Do above and beyond all they can ask or think. Let them not ever look behind, but look forward where the good shepherd is leading them. So take them into hard places, places that no other church wants to go. No other body of Christians can ever do that because they're scared, but this church will not be scared. Give them that fearless, that boldness of a Caleb and a Joshua that want to take the land. I pray even right now, Father, you would speak to, young, speak to these young people, these young families. What have you called them for? Why are they here? What's their purpose? 
as you're sitting there, just hear God speak to you right now. Not Jim Yost anymore, but God's Spirit speaking to you. Say, yes, Lord, we hear and we will obey. Father God, I ask for the kingdom to come to earth. Your will is to be done in Singapore like it is in heaven. And use this group right here to make it happen. Let 2019 be the best year of their lives. It might be the hardest year of their lives, but it's going to be the best. Because they're going to to see you show up. Hear God speak to you. One thing that you're hearing God say. Say, Lord, I hear it. The one thing from today, I've got it. And nothing is going to grab this from my heart. In the name of Jesus, we seal what you're speaking right now. And no power above or below the earth can take what you put into our heart. It's good seed and good soil and will produce good fruit. In the name of Jesus, we lock it. And we will be doers of your word. 